You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Good morning. Welcome to Midtown Church on the first Sunday of 2020. The first Sunday of a new decade. The first Sunday of the rest of your life. I feel like a youth pastor. Guys, welcome. I'm really glad everyone found their way in through the right door this morning. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Matt Tolander. I serve as the fantasy football champion on staff here at Midtown Church. I formerly served as the leadership development pastor, and that was until a couple weeks ago uh, when I beat Jason Carroll in our fantasy football championship. Uh, So I'm still trying to get Justin to change my title on the website. Hopefully we can get that going soon. Hey, jump, uh, I'm going to jump around in Scripture a little bit this morning, so it might be kind of hard to follow if you try and go each place with me, but go ahead and grab your Bibles and go to Mark 2, and we will end up in Mark 2 eventually, um, but there's other stuff we have to, to cover first. We're continuing our Habits series, and uh, Justin opened the series last week with a teaching on Scripture memory, and so if you weren't here last week, first of all, we forgive you. Second of all, you should jump on the podcast and listen to Justin's talk from last week because it was very, very good. And the goal of this series is just to highlight some of the habits from the Healthy Spiritual Habits booklet that we put together and distributed last fall. And if you didn't get one of those, we have some on the communion tables in the back. So it's not too late to jump in uh, with us on the, on the Healthy Habits. So what we did was we asked everyone in our, in our church to commit to developing just two healthy spiritual habits over the course of the next year. And so I'm up here this morning to talk about one of the habits that I'm cultivating in my own life, uh, which is the Sabbath. So (laughs) Caleb and I, we didn't orchestrate that, but but here we go. Lots of Sabbath talk this morning. Um, And there's a lot that I could say about the Sabbath, and honestly, I had like a lot of trouble narrowing my focus Uh, for this morning's teaching and trying to figure out exactly what to say, but I want to try and accomplish three things this morning. Uh, The first thing is I want to explain what Sabbath is, where it came from, and how it developed throughout history. The second thing I want to do is I want to explain what Sabbath looked like at the time of Jesus and then look at Jesus' thoughts on the Sabbath. And then the third thing I want to do is I want to tell you just about my own Sabbath practice so that you can get an idea of what Sabbath might look like for you if it's something that you want to work into your spiritual life and hopefully have some some practical stuff there at the end. So hopefully by the time I'm finished, you will wonder at least a little bit whether this ancient practice of Sabbath might actually be the key to following Jesus in 21st century America. So maybe you'll just wonder that just a little bit by the time I'm done. That's kind of my goal. So let's start here. What is the Sabbath? What is it? Um, If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you're familiar with the book of Genesis, you know that Genesis chapter 1 is a poetic account of the creation story. Uh, And in Genesis 1, we read uh, that God spoke creation into existence over the course of six days. On day one, we get light and dark, day and night, day two is the sky, day three, vegetation, then we get the sun, moon, stars, day five is bird, fish, day six is animals and mankind. And if you remember, if you've read this before, you know that every step of the way through this six-day process, the author of the poem uses the same word to describe how God feels about the things he's created. And you see this phrase over and over, and he saw that it was what? Good. Good Good 
is the adjective of the first six days of creation. The earth, good. Day and night, good. Sky, good. Plants, good. Celestial bodies, good. Birds, fish, animals, good. Human beings, good. All of creation, very good. And then on day seven, the adjective changes. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, which should uh, be up on the screen here. Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from his work. And this word rest is the Hebrew word Shabbat. It's where we get our word Sabbath. It literally means to stop. Verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it, what's the adjective here? Holy. So for six days, we get good, 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 very good, and then on day seven, we get holy. God sets it apart. He consecrates it. He dedicates it. He sanctifies it. Why? With the rest of the verse. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. The Hebrew word kadosh, which is translated holy, is one of the most important words in all of the Jewish Bible, or what we call the Old Testament. Uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel writes that kadosh, holy, is a word which more than any other is representative of the mystery and the majesty of the divine. So holy is the defining characteristic of God. When I was a kid, I used to read these children's books about a character named Clifford, and Clifford, well, Clifford was, say it with me if you know it, a big red dog. Those are the defining characteristics of Clifford. Clifford is a big red dog. And in Isaiah 6, the angels who surround God, who experience him in his fullness, describe God this way, holy, holy, holy. Now, is God other things besides holy? Yes. But holy is the adjective that most uniquely describes God in comparison to everything else in creation. It refers to God's otherness. It refers to his uniqueness, his set-apartness. And being a divine adjective, it's impossible for human beings to fully grasp. But for the purposes of our teaching this morning, if I say the word holy, think sacred, set-apart, or special, or unique. So this raises an interesting question then. How do human beings, who are things go about interacting with and carrying on a relationship with a holy God who is not a thing, but is spirit? Where do we meet with him? I mean, conventional religious wisdom, even in this time, would have suggested that, uh, that God would consecrate a place, right? This is what all the gods of other faiths do. They specify a place. They dedicate a place. They set it apart. A, a holy land, a holy city, a holy mountain, a holy temple, a holy ziggurat, a holy shrine, a holy spring. Or maybe they set aside some kind of object, right? Like a holy relic or a holy altar or an, a holy idol or a holy book. And what do all of those things have in common? They're things. They're created. They exist in the realm of space. And mankind can create any of those things. We can build buildings and write books and craft statues and everything else. So when the holy God consecrates a place for his people to meet and interact with him, he actually doesn't consecrate a place at all. He doesn't consecrate a thing. 
doesn't consecrate anything from the realm of space. After all, God is everywhere. God consecrates something from the realm of time. He doesn't create a holy place. He creates a holy day. Abraham Joshua Heschel, who I quoted a moment ago, called the Sabbath day architecture in time. I should stop here just to mention, uh, each one of you should read his book, The Sabbath. Uh, It's 100 pages. It'll blow your mind. The prologue alone is worth the cost of the book. And I'm going to quote from the prologue now. Here's Heschel in his book, The Sabbath. Quote, the meaning of the Sabbath is to celebrate time rather than space. Six days a week, we live under the tyranny of things of space. On the Sabbath, we try to become attuned to holiness in time. It's a day on which we are called upon to share in what is eternal in time, to turn from the results of creation to the mystery of creation, from the world of creation to the creation of the world, end quote. God commands that his people observe the Sabbath for the first time in Exodus 16. Uh, the story is the Israelites have been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They're traveling through the wilderness, and God provides uh, food for them to eat in the form of this mysterious bread-type substance that just appears on the ground every morning. They called it manna, which is a Hebrew word, which means what is it, uh, which is a great name. And God's instruction to them is that they gather only as much as they need for each day, And then on the sixth day, they gather twice as much because they wouldn't gather the manna on the Sabbath. Now, eventually, the Sabbath is codified on Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 21, verse 8 and following. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And for thousands of years the Israelites practice the Sabbath. I want to jump now to the New Testament, and we'll pick it up uh, with Jesus. And But I, want, I need to give you some background first of sort of what happens between the Old and the New Testament. So if you're familiar with the New Testament, you might know uh, that Jesus seemed to disagree with the religious leaders of his time when it came to the Sabbath. And I want to explain a little bit about why that is so you can get some of the, the uh, social and historical context. So If you read the Torah, the first five books of the Jewish Bible, or what we call the Old Testament, you'll see that in Jewish law, there are blessings for obedience and there are curses for disobedience. And one of the curses for disobedience was that if Israel didn't keep the law that God had given them, God would allow them to be conquered and ruled over by other nations. And when you follow the timeline of Jewish history from the Ten Commandments to Jesus, you see that Israel spends a lot of time in subjugation. Uh, They're they're conquered by the Babylonians in like 585 B.C., and then they get passed around from the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks and from the Greeks to the Romans. And so imagine, just if you would, just for a minute, imagine that you are a Jewish person and you're living in the second century B.C., and your people are under Greek control, and Alexander the Great is waging a culture war on you and your people because he thinks your beliefs are primitive, and he's doing everything he can to indoctrinate you to think, act, and worship like a Hellenistic Greek. But you know the Torah, 
and you know that the reason the Greeks are ruling over your people is because your people were disobedient to God. What do you do? What do you do? Well, different groups of Jews responded differently to this predicament. And one group, the largest, basically reasoned like this. We haven't kept the law well enough. God said if we disobeyed, we'd be conquered. And we've been living under Greek control for about 200 years. So we must not be obeying the law well enough. So, that, so this particular group started to put fences around the law, so to speak. So here's what this looks like. There are 613 commands in the Torah, the Jewish law. And these particular Jews added another 1,500 regulations that were passed on orally. And the written collection of these oral traditions is called the Mishnah. And their goal was to protect the integrity of their faith from Hellenistic Greek influence and to purify themselves and the nation of Israel through their obedience to God. And this group of Jews is called the Pharisees. Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word which means separate. They wanted to keep themselves separate from the influence of Greek religion and culture. And Pharisaic belief and practice formed the basis for rabbinic Judaism all the way up until today. And so I want to explain the impact that the Pharisees had on the Sabbath practice. The list of Sabbath requirements in the Torah is actually very short. Remember it, keep it holy, stop working. But in order to make sure they obeyed the Sabbath commandment adequately, the Pharisees needed to define work, right? Like if the Sabbath is the day you don't work, then what constitutes work? The Hebrew word melacha is translated work in English, which isn't very helpful because, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean what work means in our language. Melacha refers to any work that is creative or that exercises control or dominion over one's environment. So it doesn't necessarily refer to work that is laborious. Like, after all, the quintessential example of melacha in the Torah is God creating the universe, and God did not get tired creating the universe. Like, he created everything by speaking it into existence. It required no physical effort whatsoever. So the Pharisees needed to figure out what they really weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath, and to figure it out, they went back to the Torah, and they looked at all the places the Sabbath is mentioned, and they arrived at Exodus 31 when the construction of the sanctuary comes to a halt on the Sabbath. And they concluded that whatever work went into building the sanctuary, that was the work that was prohibited on the Sabbath. And they found 39 categories of work that they deemed to be off-limits. Hey, Matt, are you about to read a list of 39 categories of work from the Mishnah that are off-limits? Yes, I am. <laughs> they are. Plowing, sowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing of wool, washing of wool, separating fibers of wool, dyeing, not like physically dyeing, like dyeing fabric. I mean, Jesus technically died on the Sabbath. Anyway, dyeing fabric, spinning, making loops, setting up a loom, weaving threads, separating threads, tying, untying, sewing, tearing, building, tearing down a building. Hitting with a hammer, trapping, slaughtering, skinning, tanning a hide, scraping a hide, cutting up a hide, writing, erasing, drawing lines, kindling a fire, extinguishing a fire, taking an object from the private domain into the public domain, taking an object from the public domain into the private domain, or transporting an object in the public domain. So anything that fell into one of these categories was off limits for the Pharisees. All of these tasks were prohibited, as well as any task that operated by the same principle, uh, 
or had the same purpose. And then in addition, the rabbis actually prohibited moving any tool or implement that was mainly used for one of those purposes, as well as buying and selling and other weekday tasks. And these are the same restrictions that are in place today. And anything that resembles a prohibited activity is itself prohibited. For example, if an Orthodox Jew today went outside on the Sabbath, picked a bunch of flowers, put them in a bouquet, and put the bouquet in a vase with water, they would have violated at least four Sabbath prohibitions. Reaping, sheaving, transporting an object from public domain into private domain, and sowing or cultivating plants. So that helps you get an idea of the origins, the evolution of the Sabbath in Jewish thought over the last several thousand years. But we are not Jewish. We're followers of Jesus. And so God's covenant with Israel doesn't apply to us. We have our own. So how do we as Christians practice the Sabbath? Is it different from how they did it? How did Jesus practice the Sabbath? Am I sinning if I don't practice the Sabbath? These are the questions we're going to answer now. So now let's look finally at Mark uh, chapter 2. Starting in verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And here's the thing, though. They aren't. They aren't. Plucking a head of grain to eat for a snack on the Sabbath is not prohibited in the Torah. Where is it prohibited? In the traditions that the Pharisees set up and then imposed on the people. So over and over and over again, we see Jesus break from tradition in terms of the Sabbath prohibitions, um, but he never violates the Torah. All he does is violate the Pharisees' extra stringent traditional man-made law. And I don't know this for sure, but it seems to me, just looking at the text, like their question is kind of a loaded one. Like, given the relationship between rabbis and their disciples in first century Jewish culture, uh, it seems like what they're really asking Jesus is, what kind of rabbi would let his disciples do this? What kind of rabbi doesn't respect the Sabbath? What kind of rabbi are you anyway, Jesus? And Jesus uses this moment to give them his most important teaching on the Sabbath. Verse 25, he answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Now, the story Jesus is referencing is from 1 Samuel 21, which you can read later for yourself, maybe when you're practicing the Sabbath. And Jesus is doing two things here. The first thing he's doing is he's, ex he's exposing the pettiness of the Pharisees' rules. So by their standards, King David broke the law by eating bread that was meant for the priests. But David did it to provide for people in need. And there's nothing in the text to suggest that like, the disciples plucking grain was a matter of life and death, but that's kind of besides the point. Because the Pharisees' tradition had perverted God's design for the Sabbath. So Jesus is trying to point that out. The second thing that he's trying to do is, is a little bit more high level. Uh, the Jews at the time of Jesus were waiting for another David. They were waiting for another warrior king to liberate the people from Roman rule and usher in the kingdom of God and make everything right. And you can, you can almost imagine Jesus winking at them as he's talking to them about David. But just to make sure they get the point, he continues. Verse 27, Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for mankind, not mankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, 
even of the Sabbath. Now, there are not quotation marks in the Greek language, so there's some scholarly debate about where uh, the quotation should end uh, in verses 27 and 28. My opinion is that Jesus actually stops talking in verse 27, and then verse 28 is actually, uh, it's Mark's summary statement, not Jesus' final statement. But in any case, Jesus is trying to correct their understanding of why the Jews were supposed to keep the Sabbath in the first place. What does he say? The Sabbath was made for mankind, not mankind for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath is a means to an end, and that end is the good of mankind. So the Sabbath is meant to be a blessing to us and not a burden. It's God's gift to us. It's a temple of time where we go to rest and to delight in God's world and our life in it and in God himself. So here's the big question then. Are Christians obligated to keep the Sabbath? Are Christians obligated to keep the Sabbath? Perhaps you know that that keeping the Sabbath is actually not commanded anywhere in the New Testament. So are we obligated to? Most scholars argue no. Christians are not obligated to observe the Sabbath. We're not explicitly commanded to do so anywhere in the New Testament. The Sabbath was part of God's covenant with Israel. It doesn't carry over into the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated. Going to church on Sunday has replaced the Sabbath as our weekly worship ritual. But other scholars might say, well, we didn't throw out the the other nine commandments just because the old covenant ended. It's not like murder is totally okay now. So what, what do we do? Are we obligated to keep the Sabbath? Here's my opinion. And I'm just going to step over here, just so that's where I'm teaching. This is, this is my opinion place right here, okay? <laughs> my opinion is that no, Christians are not obligated to keep the Sabbath, but we'd be foolish not to. We'd be really, really, really foolish not to. There are several reasons I think this, but for the sake of time, I'll just give two um, at least the the two that have been really compelling to me as I've been trying to implement the Sabbath. The first reason is that practicing the Sabbath is emulating Jesus. Practicing Sabbath is emulating Jesus. If you want the life of Christ, you should adopt the lifestyle of Christ, right? So you should do the things he did. You should study the scriptures. You should spend time with God in prayer. You should preach the gospel of the kingdom. You should make disciples. You should care for the poor, heal the sick, uh, speak out against religious and political corruption. You should stand up for marginalized and oppressed people. You should eat and drink with all kinds of people, and you should keep the Sabbath. Because you don't get the eternal kind of life that Jesus has on offer unless you adopt his lifestyle. So that's the first reason. The second reason that was really compelling to me is that Sabbath is cultural resistance. Sabbath is cultural resistance. I mean, think about at at the time of the, the Ten Commandments, there was no such thing as a weekend, right? Weekends are a fairly recent phenomenon in human history. I mean, they worked every single day. But then there's this one group of people, God's people, who consecrate one day out of the week to rest and to stop worshiping. And I think that's really powerful, even, even in today's culture when we have a, a weekend. Because, you know, for most of us, like, the weekend's not really a day where you don't work. It's just the day where you do all the work you didn't get paid to do on the other days, right? 
So look, we, we live in a culture that worships the twin false gods of accomplishment and accumulation, don't we? I mean, it is do all you can, to earn all you can, to get all you can. I don't want to spend a whole ton of time on this because like, I think we all get it. I mean, we all are swimming in this thing, but come on. Like, we all know we're too busy. We all know that we're overworked. We all know that it's affecting our mental and our physical and our emotional health. We don't know how to rest, and it's killing us. It's killing us physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Here's Wayne Mueller from his book on the Sabbath. This is kind of a lengthy quote, but if you, if you stick with me, uh, I promise it's worth it. Quote, in the relentless busyness of modern life, we've lost the rhythm between work and rest. All life requires a rhythm of rest. There's rhythm in our waking activity and the body's need for sleep. There's rhythm in the way day dissolves into night and night into morning. There's a rhythm as the active growth of spring and summer is quieted by the necessary dormancy of fall and winter. There's a tidal rhythm, a deep, eternal conversation between the land and the great sea. In our bodies, the heart perceptibly rests after each life-giving beat. The lungs rest between the exhale and the inhale. We've lost this essential rhythm. Our culture invariably supposes that action and accomplishment are better than rest, that doing something, anything, is better than doing nothing. Because of our desire to succeed, we do not rest. Because we do not rest, we lose our way. We miss the compass points that would show us where to go. We bypass the nourishment that would give us support. We miss the quiet that would give us wisdom. We miss the joy and love born of effortless delight, poisoned by this hypnotic belief that good things come only through unceasing determination and tireless effort. We can never truly rest. And for want of rest, our lives are in danger. End quote. Sabbath is cultural resistance. So how should we do it then? If we're not obligated to, but we'd be foolish not to, and it is God's gift to us, meant to be a blessing and not a burden, if, if you want to opt into the Sabbath, then how do you go about doing it? Because like, we aren't bound by the Pharisees' Sabbath restrictions. We aren't even really bound by the Old Testament restrictions. So in the absence of a list of hard and fast rules, how do we practice the Sabbath? Because there, there is, at least generally speaking, some kind of right way to approach it, because the Sabbath is more than just a day off, right? Like, it's more than just an opportunity for some me time. So how do we do it? I want to share this quote from Dan Allender from his book on the Sabbath, and I've kind of used this as a jumping off point to develop uh, my own Sabbath practice. So here's Dan Allender, quote, The Sabbath is an invitation to enter delight. It's an invitation to enter delight. The Sabbath, when experienced as God intended, is the best day of our lives. Without question or thought, it's the best day of the week. It's the day we anticipate on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and the day we remember on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Sabbath is the holy time when we feast, play, dance, have sex, sing, pray, laugh, tell stories, read, paint, walk, and watch creation in its fullness. Listen to this. 
Few people are willing to enter the Sabbath and sanctify it to make it holy because a full day of delight and joy is more than most people can bear in a lifetime, let alone a week. So how do we do it? I want to just give you some examples of the things I do on my Sabbath. And this is not a prescription to you. You don't have to do it the same way I do it. In fact, you probably shouldn't. Like you probably just need to figure out like what works for you and, and what you need and, and how you connect with God best and how, you know, what you need rest from and that sort of thing. But so here's, here's just what I did when I set out to try and start implementing this. Um, I work two jobs. So I work a full-time job, and then I'm, I'm part-time at the church. So taking a 24-hour Sabbath day for me would require like a total overhaul of my weekly schedule. And so I decided to start small and then scale up to the 24 hours. So I, I started with two three-hour Sabbath times each week, just kind of a morning and evening. Uh, and then I, I worked that up to two six-hour <laughs> Sabbath times. Um, and then now I'm up to one 12-hour Sabbath time a week. And my goal is to scale up to a 24-hour Sabbath from Friday afternoon to uh, Saturday afternoon sometime in the next few weeks. And I focus on three things on my Sabbath, just three things. And it's stopping, resting, and delighting. Stopping, resting, delighting. So first focus is stopping. And I have kind of diagnostic questions for each of these. So for stopping, here's my diagnostic question. What do I need to rest from? What do I need a break from? And so here are some things that I identified I need a break from. First thing I need a break from is work, right? I mean, that's, that's the most obvious Sabbath commandment. You don't work on the Sabbath. So I don't do tasks for either of my jobs on the Sabbath, um, except for one exception, because I work, my full-time job is for a property management company, and I'm the on-call person. And sometimes our tenants call, and they have an emergency, and they need help, so I can't be out of pocket all day. Um, but, you know, Jesus often had his Sabbath interrupted to help people, so I feel pretty okay about this. I feel like I'm like I'm doing all right, uh, but I do, I do limit the frequency with which I check my voicemail for work stuff, and then I don't do chores, and I don't run errands on the Sabbath, so I need, I need a break from work. Uh, I also, sometimes I need a break from people, like just being honest. I'm not, like a, I'm not an introvert, um, and I don't think you have to spend your whole Sabbath in solitude, but like, there are people who fill me up, and then there are people who drain me. You know what I'm talking about? Like, do you, do you have these people? Um, and so, like, there, there, my Sabbath time is, I, I see it as time to be filled, not time to be expended. And so there are certain people who, like, I would love to hang out with on the Sabbath, and then there are certain people who will never hear from me or see me on the Sabbath ever. Uh, so sometimes I need a break from people. Uh, here's a big one for me is, like, I need a break from digital distraction. Uh, I, I read a, a study recently that... Um, they said, like, back in, in 2000, before Wi-Fi and smartphones and digital capitalism and everything else, uh, the average attention span of an American was 14 seconds, and now the average attention span of an American is 8 seconds. And by comparison, uh, a goldfish has an attention span of 9 seconds. So I was like, okay, I need help with digital distractions. So, so here's what I do on my Sabbath. I put my phone on Do Not Disturb. So there's only, only the people on my favorites list uh, can get in touch with me. And I'm not a no-screens person, but I'm trying to at least be a one-screen-at-a-time person. Uh, so like, and I'm not trying to be like watching a TV show and scrolling Twitter and texting 
and looking at that actor's Wikipedia page, and Googling Instant Pot recipes, and shopping for something I want to buy later, and pausing the TV show to watch a YouTube video, and whatever else. Like, at some point, I may go all the way to no screens, but for now, I'm just trying to deal with one screen at a time. All right, that's more my speed, just for where I'm at. So, uh, then, then the last thing I, I need a break from is I need a break from accumulation and from materialism. I need a break from accumulation. So I don't shop during my Sabbath times, and I don't like look for things that I want to buy later. Because um, what I'm trying to do is I'm, I'm trying to cultivate contentment with, with the things that I already own, and I'm trying to recognize that like if there's something I really need, God will provide it. Um, so for at least one day a week, I don't buy anything. I, I allow myself to spend money on food, or on a shared experience. Like if, if some friends and I were going to a show, I mean, I'd spend money to go to a show with friends on the Sabbath, but I don't buy like new possessions for myself or shop on the Sabbath. And then my second focus is resting, resting. So the first one is stopping, second one is resting. And my diagnostic question is just like, what do I need to recharge? What do I need to recharge? This is different for everybody. Some people need to be around people to recharge, some people need to be alone to recharge. Um, what do I need? Well, for one thing, I need to sleep in. So I don't set my alarm on the morning of my Sabbath. I just wake up when my body wakes up. Uh, and then another thing I do on my Sabbath is I'll do an emotional check-in, maybe emotional check-in time where I just sort of do some reflection and then some journaling, maybe some exercises that, that my therapist taught me. Because um, one thing I've learned, and I learned this from Pete Scazzaro in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, is that our emotional health is kind of the ceiling for our spiritual health. And our emotional maturity is the ceiling for our spiritual maturity. Like, you can't be more spiritually mature than you are emotionally mature. And so for me, trying to get, just get really in touch with my own emotions and feelings is really, really helpful thing uh, for me to do on my Sabbath. Um, and so I just, I create this space to just kind of reflect on the previous week and think about how I'm feeling about those things um, and notice what I'm feeling about those things and then give myself some time to be curious about my feelings and ask my feelings what they're trying to tell me about the last week. Um, and so I'll do some journaling as part of this. I've always wanted to be a consistent journaler, but I've never been disciplined enough to do it every day. And so doing it just once a week on the Sabbath is, is perfect for me because I still get to feel like I'm being consistent, but it, it doesn't become a, a daily burden. Uh, and then the added benefit of journaling is that for me at least, is that if I have to deal with like some heavy or some difficult stuff during my emotional check-in time, I can write it out and I can close the journal and I can put it away and I have my whole, I do this like as the first part of my Sabbath, I have the whole rest of my Sabbath to just like have that be put away and just let God take care of me for a day um, and to let him be with me. So those are some things that I do as part, of, as part of the rest. And then my third focus is delighting. So what increases my enjoyment of my creator or his creation? That's my question. What increases my enjoyment of God? What increases my enjoyment of God's world? Uh, and so this, this is, uh, involves some more of the, the worship and spiritual discipline part. So uh, to begin my Sabbath, to open my Sabbath, I uh, have kind of an opening practice. I'll light incense. <laughs> if, if, I feel like kind of a nerd. Okay, so I light incense to begin my Sabbath. Here's the reason I do that is because I just, I'll, I'll light it, and then I'll kind of let the smoke and the scent kind of dissipate in the room. And it just serves as sort of like a visible, symbolic, tangible reminder that God is present with me. Like, that's, that's just something I need. I just need to put that in front of myself in a symbol as a reality and just remember 
okay, this is my Sabbath, this is my time with God, and he is here, and he is present with me, and we're going to hang out. So that's, that's why I do that. It just helps me be more immediately aware of the presence of God. And then I'll move into a time of prayer. I, I'll begin this with a, a period of, of solitude and silence and stillness, which if you know me, those are like swear words to me. But, um, but I start <laughs> with, with solitude, silence, and stillness, listening to God, and just trying to, to focus on enjoying his presence, like not having to say anything, not even necessarily have to think anything, not even you know, don't have to like read the Bible while you do this. I just sort of sit. And I just try to enjoy being present with God. It's very, very weird <laughs> uh, when you first start doing it. But it's born a, a lot of fruit for me. And this is my prayer time for me. This isn't my prayer time for others. I do intercessory prayer, pray through uh, our prayer requests that come through, or stuff I write down as prayer requests in the staff meetings um, during the week. I pray for all that stuff in different time. This is my, my time between me and God. And then the, the next thing I'll do is I try and curate beauty on the Sabbath, because uh, that's just something that helps me enjoy God more and helps me enjoy his creation more. Uh, I'm a musician, so music is usually part of my Sabbath in one way or another. Um, I'll make some music, write some music, listen to some music. I have a pretty substantial record collection, and one thing I've started doing on my Sabbath is just like putting a record on, putting my phone in the other room, just sitting and listening to it all the way through. Like, when was the last time you did that? I just listened to an album all the way through where it wasn't just background noise. Um, and I'll just listen through it. I'll maybe like make some notes while I listen, and then I might poke around online to see if I can find some stuff to read or supplement it, like maybe a review or a feature or an interview or an essay, something like that. Uh, I do pleasure reading on the Sabbath, uh, I, and not just Christian books. I mean, I just read what I want to read on the Sabbath. Um, if I watch TV or a movie, I try to be really intentional about what and how I watch, so I just... I tend to lean towards certain kinds of shows or movies on my Sabbath, usually something like thought-provoking, usually something kind of deep, and I feel like a snob, but, you know, just, you, you, so, like, I'm not going to watch, like, Bob's Burgers on the Sabbath, right? Like, I'm not, not to hate on Bob's Burgers, but it's just probably not going to be my Sabbath show. Um, anyway, and then I, I try not to binge watch. So when I'm going to watch multiple episodes, I try and break them up with stuff in between, so I don't just sit and go episode, episode, episode of a TV show. And then the last thing I might do uh, as part of this is fellowship. So I don't always spend time with people on my Sabbath. It really depends on what I need that week. So sometimes I feel like I need to be home alone, and so I stay home. Sometimes I feel like I want to hang out, so maybe I'll invite someone over or try and make plans to be around people. And that's what my Sabbath looks like, at least as of right now. That's, it's subject to change if I feel like something isn't working or I want to try something different. Um, and yours will look different, especially if you're married or if you have kids. Um, but uh, that's just what mine looks like. And hopefully that can give you some kind of a picture. You can start to visualize, if I were to do this in my life, what would be the sorts of things that I would incorporate into it. Um, and before we pray and, then, and move into communion time, I just want to recommend two books to you. The one I already mentioned, The Sabbath, Abraham Joshua Heschel. That should be the first book you read. It's 100 pages. It's really short. It'll blow your mind. Uh, and that's from the Jewish perspective. And then you should read uh, the book Subversive Sabbath. Subversive Sabbath by A.J. Swoboda, uh, which is from a Christian perspective. Um, and if you want links to those, or if you forget, or if you want more information, you can jump on the website, go to the staff page, shoot me an email, mtolender at, at uh, midtownaustin.org. And I'm happy to help you in any way you, uh, I can.
So let me pray for us, uh, and then we'll take communion together. Something we do every week together to honor Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, who invites all of us to himself with these words. Matthew 11, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you Shabbat. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of the Sabbath. Uh, I pray for those of us in this room who are trying to be faithful in setting aside time to rest and delight in you. I pray that you would reward that faithfulness. I pray that you would inspire others to do the same. Uh, Jesus, thank you for the easy yoke. Thank you for showing us how to live the eternal kind of life. We honor you this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to each of us now and tell us what to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.